Welcome to Aka Media's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I am Sarah Kessler, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Southern California and also the TV section editor for Public Books. And I'll be moderating this episode on politics. We're very thankful to be a part of the Aka Media podcast sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. Last summer and over seven episodes, this podcast series explored television's role in mediating the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. We will be finishing out 2020 with four more episodes, thinking about how television across all of its forms from network to streaming TV and how television studies may best speak to these peculiar and surreal times. And indeed, they are quite peculiar and surreal. This is our first of these four episodes and the topic is politics. First, a disclaimer, we're recording this on Monday, November 9th, two days after Joe Biden was officially projected by the media, and that's something that we'll talk about, uh, to have won the 2020 presidential election. With a winner in sight, we will certainly talk about the election and television's role in guiding us from the primaries to the drawn out process of counting ballots and posting results as well as other ways of conceiving and mediating the political. Now to talk about these complex issues we have joining us, Matt Delmont, the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History at Dartmouth College. Hello, Matt. Hi, Sarah, thanks for having me. You are so welcome. We have with us Dr. Katie Lausch. She has just become Dr. Katie Lausch uh, and recently finished her degree in the Department of Film, Television, and Media at the University of Michigan. Congratulations, Dr. Lausch. Thank you, thank you for having me. Uh, we also have Rupali Mukherjee, Professor of Media Studies at Queens College. Hi, Rupali. Hi, wonderful to be here. And last but not least, Susan Omer, the William T. Carey and Helen Kuhn Carey Chair in Modern Communication at the University of Notre Dame. Hi, Susan. Hi there, Sarah. Um, all right, so let's kick it off. We have so much to talk about. And I, uh, I just wanted to start by asking, how has basically the last week been for you in terms of your own television viewing? Have you been doing flow or have you been doing segmentation? Have you just been like binging CNN, MSNBC, uh, constantly? Have you been taking a break from media? Just what has this experience been like for you as we've navigated this just deeply televisual landscape of the last week? I don't watch a lot of television. Uh, I do streaming stuff, but I don't watch like live television. And I have found myself uh, essentially, I found a free streaming service so I've gone between CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News Channel. And I've forgotten how addictive it can be. Uh, it's, you know, every time I would turn it off to do other work, I would feel a certain sense of panic about it. Like, and it's because I live in Manhattan, um, the streets are very responsive to ongoing events. So I'm doing something else and somebody starts shouting something on the block in front of me and I am rushing to turn the streaming on again because I'm like, something's happened and I've missed it. So that's been my experience. 
Yeah, I haven't watched this this much MSNBC in my life because I don't like watching TV news at all. I, it makes me feel very stressed out. And it's just so much waiting. And so I find I really struggle with the waiting and would much rather refresh my Twitter feed as though that experience is any different. So it was really interesting. I was sort of checking in every like two hours or so and I would watch as long as I could stand it and then I would have to turn it back off and watch something else. Because the like palpable anxiety in the studio was just like overwhelming for me as a viewer. And Katie, were you tuning in primarily to MSNBC or were you um, switching between networks as Rupali was describing? I was switching between MSNBC, NBC, and then our local PBS station. I cannot bring myself to watch CNN since 2016. I just can't do it. I also had wanted to ask if people, because um, you know the whole thing with, uh, you know, Kornacki or King. So I was I was going to ask if, uh, if people... Uh, uh, on this call had, you know, a preference for King or Kornacki. <laughs> I'll chime in. Um, Susan, please. I would describe my viewing as completely obsessive. Um, the cable system that we use, AT&T, has a news multiverse. So I was alternating among CNN, MSNBC, Fox, BBC World and PBS because of commercial breaks. You know, I totally agree that we don't want to be caught up in those. Um, I'm teaching two classes this semester on media and presidential elections. I teach them every four years. And part of what the class does is to live chat during all the conventions, all the debates, and election night coverage for the experience of election night. Um, and my one of my classes set up a group meet. So we were messaging each other continually all last week. I don't normally stay up till 3 a.m., um, but they did, so I thought we're in this together. So it was absolutely obsessive, totally and completely obsessive. And this is Matt. Um, I'm almost the complete opposite of Susan. Um, and after 2016, I tried to swear off the live election coverage. So I went to sleep at uh, 9 o'clock Eastern before they announced anything, um, hoping to wake up to some positive news. I woke up to not the news I was hoping for quite yet. Uh, so tried to turn off my computer and everything, went for a long run, um, and then just tried to minimize my amount of media intake for the next four or five days. I would check my phone if someone texted me, um, check Twitter just because I couldn't stop, but I would try to limit it to sort of two or three minute bursts to get a little bit of information, check the New York Times or Washington Post homepage just to see what, where everything was, but as much as possible, not uh, not dive in too deep. Um, I think like other folks, I, I tend not to watch a lot of TV news anymore if it's not for research purposes. Um, so I'm mostly doing sort of streaming of uh, specific uh, things that are related to things I want to learn more about. If I could follow up on Matthew's comment, um, you raise an interesting question, which is the benefit of liveness versus following up periodically. I asked my students about this because I said a rational person would get a good night's sleep and check the AP website in the morning, which is the source for Fox and other stations, and get the update. So I asked them, besides the fact that we all like to message each other, why were we on there at three o'clock in the morning? And Maybe because we're Notre Dame and it's it was Clemson week, but we all felt that the analogy on election night was to a sports game. It was the attraction of liveness. It was, it's going on right now, as Rupali said, people are reacting. We want to know the latest count in Arizona, the latest count in Nevada. So I wonder what everybody thought of that, if part of the attraction for some of us was the liveness and maybe a sense of being in control just by having information because we sure weren't in control most of the week 
and there was so much at stake. So there was something about getting those continual feeds that gave me a sense and my class a sense that, you know, we've got some control over this process. Right. Even if you know, you understand as you're watching, which I felt like I did on an intellectual level, if not on an emotional level, that I was not in control of anything and was in fact watching, you know, John King or Steve Kornacki. Like it was very information crisis catastrophe. Like I was like, this is just news being produced out of an absolute, like uh, out of nothing, out of a total lack of knowledge of of what's happening and the kind of like continue like the way that news reproduces itself was on full display for like four consecutive days and yet at the same time i felt like if i missed even 50 new votes in georgia that i was would like lose my mind and was waking up in the middle of the night to like turn on msnbc which i also hate msnbc but was finding it really like a security blanket because the way they packaged the information was so like comforting and not abrasive <laughs> and like just trying to like soothe the liberal spirit, even though I don't identify as, as a liberal. Um, it, I mean, the fact that it that it made me feel so much better has really given me a pause and given me a lot to think about. Hi, it's Rupali again. So I, I remember how I dealt with the uh, news reporting in 2016, and it was pretty much Matt's uh, sort of pattern. At nine o'clock, we turned the television off because we knew it was bad news. And so at least part of the reason, I think, for this reaching back, looping back to, uh, you know, what just happened was that there is a comfort in hearing good news. There's something sort of like, it's it's not a big deal. You know, it's like there's a sort of everyday regularness about getting another 500 votes, another, you know, 2,000 votes. And I was taking great comfort out of just receiving good news. And I think that was at least partly why I was doing it. I also must admit that on the side, I was running Google searches to ask, what is going on in the White House right now? You know, hoping that there would be some amount of sort of salacious, gossipy content uh, and that CNN and MSNBC were not giving me that. And so television was failing me in some ways because I really wanted to see like Trump suffering or something. Uh, it's changed my relationship with television a little bit this these last few days for sure. And somehow, even though he's always being shown to us in this moment where we most wanted to know, I mean, or at least I think maybe I can speak for the people on this call, <laughs> not everybody, but the moment where like I most wanted to see him and the visualization of his suffering, <laughs> like what, like I felt denied that. The moment when CBS, NBC, ABC interrupt his press conference on the night of the 5th, it was like a remarkable moment. And, you know, I have no faith in the post-truth, fake news kind of discourse that has circulated since uh, Donald Trump. But the, here's a moment where there's pretty dramatic television playing out um, and it's TV trying to do the right thing. I'm doing scare quotes when I do that uh, for listeners. Let's talk about, about that moment, um, Matt, Katie, and, and Susan. And were you watching when that happened or kind of, I, I was not watching, so I did not, I did not see, or I was watching CNN. So I was, I saw the, the entirety of that atrocious press conference, but um, thoughts, Katie, yes. 
I was not watching. I believe I was trying to work, whatever that is. And I ended up catching it like 20 minutes late on Twitter. So by then it had already, it had gone through like three joke cycles and like lots of pontificating about like whether or not this was a good thing and why it took them four years to do this. And so I missed the kind of initial shock moment and kind of dove immediately into the aftermath of that and trying to figure out like what sort of precedent we were finally setting. I saw it on MSNBC and my first thought was, what took so long, as Katie said? And and somehow because the numbers were trending against him, everybody's brave now. And one of the interesting things about today in the last few days is how more people seem to feel brave, not Republicans so much, but media seem to feel more emboldened to speak the truth. I mean, it's staggering to me that it took this long, that they were so timid. But I was watching MSNBC and Brian Williams. It was like, well, enough of that. It wasn't even hesitation. Um, But I was just astonished. It felt like the emperor has no clothes moment, and it was about time. And this is this is Matt again. And to Rupali's point about wanting sort of more information or more video, I think from that I would love to see the the sort of production uh, the production room when those decisions were made. If it was the anchors acting independently with the sort of Trump's voice in their ear, if it was someone the executive director behind the scenes, um, if the networks were texting each other right and saying, "Okay, we're going to cut it. Let's all do it together." Um, I'm just kind of fascinated about this, as other people have said, it took so long for the media to to quote unquote do the right thing, uh, not letting the president make outrageous uh, false statements, um, that to see them sort of interrupt the speech in a way that they hadn't done previously. Um, I hope at some point we get some um, some ethnographies of the people who are making some of these decisions. And and they ask them, you know, what, what to Susan's point, what did take you so long? Like, why did, why did it come to this? Was it just the election results that you finally feel uh, emboldened to, to do this? Um, at Rupali again. Um, to Matt's point, one of the incidents, I think, where we get, do get a bit of a glimpse into the the production end of this is when there's a an, uh, a big reaction from the White House when Fox News calls Arizona for Biden. And apparently Trump called Murdoch and asked him to take this down and Murdoch told him, forget about it or something like that. And then there was a certain amount of accounting for the decision to call Arizona by the head of the data analytics sort of division of Fox. And you got to see a little bit of the kind of crisis that this produced on the inside. I I mean, I I think an ethnography would really kind of get us to some serious insights about what is happening in these rooms right now. But just in terms of like the drama of being called out by the sitting president for telling the truth, it's kind of a remarkable moment. I was watching that and we were live chatting with my class and I think I was jumping up and down and screaming because it was remarkable that Fox in any way would go against Trump. And you're quite right. So Brett Baer and his co-anchor brought out the head of their decision desk. And not only did he call Arizona, and this was, I think, 1130 Tuesday night. It was why Trump came out and complained about some of them have called Arizona. You're right, it's because it was Fox. And not only did he call Arizona, But the head of the decision desk said at that time, we don't see a path for Trump forward. He essentially called the election. Um, It was really quite bold. It wasn't just Arizona. But Brett Baer looked at disbelief, kept saying, are you sure? Are you you sure you want to say that? They were all speaking, not exactly in code, but they all knew what they were warning each other about. And 
I mean, this is one of the only times I would say anything positive about Fox, but you have to hand it to them for having guts. I mean, they actually knew what they were doing and made that call. Now, interestingly, as as we know, they were the only network that was relying on AP. The other ones had gone with Edison Research. Um, but it was also a testament to the Associated Press that they felt strongly enough about it that they called it. And then about an hour or so after Trump's speech, they brought out the, the next highest person at the decision desk, who I think were offering him a chance, you know, do you want to take it back? Do you want to qualify this? And to his credit, he stuck to his guns and said, this is what we see. I think my favorite moment was maybe the next night, I think it was Wednesday night, Brett Baer brought back the head of the decision desk and asked about something else, like maybe about the general trend of things. And they kept wanting him to recant and he said, when frogs have wings. I mean, it was it was that vivid. So anyway, I'll never forget that moment. And really, I applaud them for sticking to their guns. Yes, this is Katie. It was really strange. It was an interesting moment for people, like, writ large to sort of think about how much power the media has in terms of not just shaping the election coverage, but, like, essentially calling it and how odd that is that these private institutions using public airwaves or however we want to talk about it sort of have this power to kind of determine who won the presidential election. And I think the Fox Arizona call was really fascinating because then there was so much, I just imagine people like running around newsrooms trying to decide what, when to call what states and whether they wanted to be first or whether they wanted to wait to avoid any appearance of like favoritism or excitement about how things were sort of turning. And it was just really fascinating to sort of watch that unfold and watch how much power they had to determine how this sort of rolled out, right? Like there were many statisticians saying we could have called this on Thursday. And the fact that they waited until Saturday, I think is really something that people will be talking about for a long time. I also saw somewhere, and I don't know if, if others saw this as well, that there was some kind of memo sent around at Fox saying that once the election was called, Biden was not to be referred to on air as the president-elect and Kamala Harris was not to be referred to as the vice president-elect and that this kind of compensatory memo about language was sent around. I don't know if other people saw that as well, but... Yes, that was widely covered. I thought it came from Murdoch. I thought that's what was reported. And then there was a little bit of pullback, but... That was widely reported. Um, to go back to your point, Katie, which I think was so smart about the power of media to call this, one thing that was interesting to me is they would refer to each other and what they had done, but not by name. So, for example, after Fox made that call for Arizona, the other networks did not say Fox did this. They said another network. Um, so I just wondered what in a way, they're not giving credit to their competitors, but it was interesting that that, that continued th through the week, really. Based on what we've been talking about so far, it, it's kind of a, a question that evolves out of all of this, I think, but I'm hesitant to, to kind of make or facilitate any kind of big declarations about what's happening with television right now. But are we seeing a moment of sort of unprecedented visibility of the apparatus? I mean, I mean, it feels almost like it's this moment where the apparatus has never been more visible, but it's also never been more obscured because the status of 
kind of information has been thrown entirely into crisis. And, you know, I'm thinking about Trump tweeting, oh, so now major networks call the election when in fact, you know, this is the kind of exemplar of, of media making a presidency. And then sort of, of course, he's upset because media can also unmake his presidency. So are we seeing a moment of unprecedented transparency? Like, are we seeing the apparatus or what are we seeing? So, so this is Rupali. Um, you know, I, I, it reminds me of the, the Watergate moment in some ways when the journalists became sort of household names and national heroes. And I knew about these two guys and I was growing up in India, you know. So I think it's, I'm sorry, um, I, I think it's- There's an um, adorable cat walking across the screen right now for uh, those listening. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think it has, it, it tells us something about the wider crisis that Trumpism has fomented against the press generally, um, the kind of climate of attack that the fourth estate has been taking in a sustained way for the last four years, or four and a half years. Uh, so that on the one hand, there is this, you know, there apparently on Twitter, there are um, these polls on which which one of them between Karnaki and King are uh, the cuter one, the better one, the the more marriageable one, you know, like so there's all these women like issuing <laughs> marriage proposals to these men. And I believe, you know, whatever. So maybe men are doing it too because Karnaki is uh, a gay man. So I, I've just seen the, the women who, who are doing these things. So there's, again, this kind of rising heroization of journalists and this curiosity about their motivations and the kind of work they do and why they do it that way. And so it's a kind of saving the press from totalitarian political forces that we're also, I think, witness to right now. Um, this is Susan. Sarah, I think you raise a very interesting point. And for me, the word the word unprecedented is a little distracting. So I'm going to put that aside because I'll go down that alley and I don't know where I'll go. <laughs> but there are two point, two examples to your point about transparency. One is the contrasts among the networks, who's called Arizona, who's called Nevada and when, what they're saying about Pennsylvania, et cetera. And that in itself, even if we're not obsessed with news multiview and multiple sources, that calls into question their methods, what they're doing, how they, how they represent information. So that's one thing that's particularly striking this year. And another thing is that I find helpful is that because of these constant attacks on the media that Rupali talked about, the media explain themselves more. So, for example, when there was that ridiculous viral idea about the um, Sharpies in Arizona and would they invalidate ballots and were people intentionally told to use them, CNN and I think MSNBC, but definitely CNN, interviewed the Secretary of State of Arizona who refuted it on the spot. So one thing we were seeing is that as these viral conspiracies took hold, the networks were intervening um, and presenting themselves as having access, immediate access to these sources of information like the Secretaries of State. So for me, that was remarkable for this election is that that effort to 
to speak the truth or at least speak against viral conspiracy theories from social media. So I found that and the disparities among their calls to be some of the most interesting issues that emerged this year. There was some real intense didacticism on display in the news media, you know, during the election. And it really did. I mean, I agree with you, Susan. This is Sarah, by the way. Um, I agree with you that, you know, there was this kind of like, and this is how democracy works. You see these votes, you know, are counted in this way and like this county, you know, but it's not about the county. It's about the total votes in the state, you know, and it felt very much like, like like sheer terror was motivating this didacticism, like the fear of complete social collapse. And that was where the love for Kornacki and King came from, was just their unflinching like ability to do this for entire weeks without sleeping. Like um, Matt, I feel like I just want to hear what you have to say about all of this. I feel like your face is showing me that there's a lot that you have to say. <laughs> Um, thank you for asking, Sarah. Um, I think to, to Susan's point, the um, idea of the television stations intervening more often, um, it almost makes me think of TV taking on a, a new role as sort of social media has sort of exploded with its role it plays in elections, that sort of social media is kind of the, the bad guy and TV is the sort of the serious person in the room, um, which might be funny to think about sort of a decade or two decades ago, but I think that actually could be a very valuable function TV could play right now is actually taking the gatekeeper role much more seriously. Um, that it's not just anyone can say anything at any time and that all these points are equally valid, but there are actual experts and expertise is a thing. And if you want to refute a, a viral conspiracy theory, you immediately find the best local person to do it. Um, I think, Sarah, the reason I was smiling is I had dinner. we had dinner last night with um, a couple and one of the people in the the couple is from Scotland. And so she's gotten up to speed very, very quickly on the U.S. Uh, election system uh, in this past year. And it's I think it's actually good in many ways for TV to play this more didactic role because the system doesn't make any sense. Like I was trying to explain it to my kids. Like they, they saw the 270 number that Biden had to get to. And they're like, so he only needs 270 votes. It's like, no, those are electoral college votes. It's like you start like going down this rabbit hole of like there's not national election laws like it differs state by state and like the processes for counting these and um and going back to susan's earlier point that it, it is very much like a sporting event but it also all the votes at the end of the day should just be the same right it's only a sort of function of when they're being counted and how they're being reported um so the whole process is kind of crazy making <laughs> and so um i as just a regular old citizen welcome the <laughs> The TV play, taking a more didactic role reminded me of some of the stuff that probably hasn't been explained to me since an eighth grade social studies class about how all these uh, different levels of our democracy actually are supposed to work. It was like a primer in the dysfunction of democracy, like a, like a primer in just how little sense this system makes. But I, I Matt, to that point, also saw like a lot of people from all over the globe, which I think also speaks to the kind of you know, transnational importance of this particular election, but people from across the globe being like, oh, I now know, you know, I now understand the difference between the electoral college and like, you know, the popular vote. And, you know, like, like I'm paying attention to the vote in, you know, Arizona, a state I had barely heard of until yesterday. <laughs> like, it's fascinating. Katie? 
One of the things I've been thinking about is, so I wrote this dissertation about evangelical TV networks. Very, very relevant right now. Yes, unfortunately. And it's very interesting how they took this idea of like anti-media bias that conservatives sort of came up with in the 40s to talk about how the media is liberal and how they're sort of against us and our ideological project. And so evangelical TV networks like took that and ran with it and never looked back. And so in prepping for this, I was watching... Mike Huckabee has a show on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and it aired Saturday night, and he has in no way, he said that it's possible that Trump may have lost this election, and then uh, sort of made, like, uh, Mike Huckabee dad-style jokes about, like, various conspiracy theories in a very, like, folksy sort of way. And so I was just thinking about this idea of the media being biased against conservatives and how I certainly perceived anxiety about that coming from the mainstream networks and then like the panelists that they were choosing and all those different things and obviously they operate like that all the time but it felt especially palpable on election night that they were really trying to do the both sides thing even as they were also trying to tell the truth and so I thought that was a really interesting kind of balance that they were trying to strike. And this is Susan, and to pick up on Katie's point, I see that as feeding into the didactic quality that Sarah and, and Matt mentioned in that one of the things they had to explain this year, as we know, is the different kinds of ballots and what it meant, election day versus mail-in, what came in later, and that because Trump had asked his supporters to go to the polls on election day, and those votes were counted first, there was a reason why at first he looked as if he were doing well. And then as the mail-in ballots came in, that changed generally according to the state. But there was this sense of they had to keep explaining it, partly for didactic purposes, but also to refute what could look like a conspiracy. If you didn't understand how it worked, you can see why people would get all bent out of shape, particularly when they were worked upon by Giuliani and Trump. Um, but but that part of that didacticism, I think, was especially necessary this year because of the huge increase in mail-in ballots and what that signified um, that we hadn't seen in past years. Yeah, I mean, the kind of explaining of the science of voting and the science of democracy and the electoral process, right, just also takes on increased significance in a moment where, of course, one of our greatest problems as a nation is the total denial of science. And so, you know, yeah, so so just to sort of see the anatomy of the election presented in that way. I mean, it it's hard not to feel like some kind of seismic shift occurred during this coverage. I mean, much as I don't want to engage in, in hyperbole about it, just because, you know, be, because it also just, it felt like there was this kind of collective release where also, the New York Times the following day used the word lie to describe something Trump did when, in fact, he's been lying for his entire life. But it was like finally using this language of objectivity just felt like a, a, a real break with with the sort of both sidesism relativistic stuff that we've been hearing, you know, constantly. I wanted to come back, Katie, to a point that you raised earlier about CNN. I was interested in in why you didn't want to watch them after 2016. And in particular, because one of the things, as, as you all know, in teaching this subject is that however many times you say to students, we want to create a space where we can all talk freely, they will psych you out. And it was clear to me that people who lean towards Trump 
were somewhat reticent in my classes. It was clear. So anyway, one way that came out is that one of my students complained bitterly about the narrative at CNN about which was, and she was absolutely right. CNN framed their reporting as here's what Biden has to do. Biden has to do this in Arizona, Biden has to do this and so-and-so. And of course, I'm totally with them, so I enjoyed hearing that. But it really was framed in terms of this is his path to victory. They made many fewer references to Trump's path to victory, which of course was all over Fox. So I was interested in your your reaction to CNN and if you watched it all this year, um, just in terms of narratives that particular that typify particular networks. My hatred of CNN is mostly personal. <laughs> <laughs> I just hate a lot of the people that are okay. on there, I guess. And so that's my main reason for not watching it. But I will say to your point that when I was phone banking and I would get um, people who would pretend to be undecided voters and then turn out to be Trump supporters, that happened a couple times. And they often brought up CNN and the kind of narrative that CNN was pushing during the election cycle and how CNN was kind of emblematic of this larger idea of liberal media bias. So that's very interesting to hear. I literally have not watched CNN because the only time I used to encounter it really was like in public spaces and I don't go to public spaces anymore. I want to kind of, I mean, it, it's not really so much a pivot as way as it is, uh, as it is a continuation of this, uh, of this really wonderful conversation. But um, I'm curious. So we, we had been speaking earlier about how little we actually saw of Trump. And I, I mean, and this also goes to your point that you were just making, Susan, about kind of even the the kind of linguistics and presentation of the election is this is what Biden has to do to succeed. And so in that kind of pivot away from Trump, I, again, I'll speak only for myself, my desire to kind of see his suffering beyond the press conference that that I felt was just sort of like the iconography of the fallen patriarch which is, of course, the only kind of patriarch I love to see, that kind of the only other glimpse of this that we got was, or that I saw on TV, was a kind of image of the golf cart disappearing behind a hedge. And I loved so much that, like, you know, these paparazzos, whatever, that the entire media just went to the golf course and, you know, and was like, and this is, you know, this is the president, you know, on this, on this day. But then at the same time, my, my partner, who also is a media scholar, was saying to me, you know, that behind closed doors right now, they're discussing what his next steps are going to be after the presidency, which inevitably is going to involve television, right? And so I have in my notes, like, next steps for Donnie, question mark, because I'm just... I'm, wh how does he spin this and how, I mean, do we have any fantasies or otherwise of what is going to happen as he hopefully leaves office um, and, and, and becomes something else? I mean, is this, what will sort of his relationship to television be in the wake of this, of this moment? You describe them as fantasies, but I have to say, and maybe this is, I've been tamping down my anxiety, but this is truly how I see the next four years. He will continue to rail that it was stolen from him. He is able to run again in 2024, and at this point, the Republican Party has no backbone, it seems, to say, no, we won't nominate you. It wouldn't be surprising if he set up his own network. I think he may leave the White House, but he'll never let go of the idea that he was robbed and that that will continue to fuel him over the next couple of years. So my nightmare, it certainly isn't a fantasy, but my nightmare is this. This is just the beginning. <laughs> I mean, I, I think we should certainly expect him to 
at least start with a program on Fox News. It seems to be what all um, most many of the sort of failed Republican presidential and vice presidential candidates do as a kind of first step. And yeah, they continue to do the work that they've that they do. Trumpism after Trump, I think, is the question that we are confronting, right? So what does that look like? Um, there's a lot of Trump voters who are being quoted in the quote-unquote liberal media as saying, you know, get through the lawsuits, do the recounts, let's move on, you know, sort of making the kind of patriotic argument, this is bad for U.S. democracy and for the country to keep this going too long. But 70 million votes is a sizable number, and that doesn't go away. I mean, Trump didn't create this situation, and it certainly will live beyond Trump in the White House. I mean, for in 2024, he'll be almost 80 years old. I don't know. And, and you know, the, um, the attorneys in Manhattan are very, very keen on really making him see some prosecutorial trials uh, once he gets out. Uh, so I read a, a conversation with prosecutors, legal experts, essentially weighing the extent to which he can pardon himself in a sort of preemptive kind of way. And there doesn't seem to be that much legal protection for him. So this is the problem. I mean, he might be in a jail in New York, God willing. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, what happens to Trumpism after Trump? I, that's a much bigger problem. And that has deep roots. Yeah, it's got profound class, race, gender significance, which have endured for you know, decades and will, um, because the Democratic Party is certainly not interested from in the sound of things. I mean, the ways in which they are isolating the squad and AOC in particular right now is kind of astonishing. You bring up, uh, you bring up race, which is obviously at the very center of this election and 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 the mutedness of its role in the discourse on these kind of major networks has been really notable. I mean, I, I wonder if this can bring us into a place of talking about reality TV as well, maybe by way of, a, of a, an odd bridge. But I'm a, a Bachelor Nation person, and I don't know if anyone else you know here is, but it's it's been very interesting to watch election coverage at the same time as the first uh, the first kind of COVID season of Bachelor Nation has been unfolding. And in fact, there was supposed to be an episode on Tuesday on election night that was bumped to Thursday. And, it, you know, it's just, it's been really interesting because the media coverage of the election to me and the way that it invisibilizes race has, has really overlapped with the way that race is completely visible yet utterly unspoken on uh, The Bachelorette. In particular on The Bachelorette, there's a constant conversation about the process of how the season works. And you know, like this is the process and the process works. And that to me was like a direct parallel to Kornacki and John, and, uh, John King. Like this is the process, this is how democracy works. And sort of in talking about the process, everything else like power just entirely falls to the wayside and any kind of analysis of power falls to the wayside, um, which seems like a characteristic of reality TV, I think more generally we could say as well. 
that was not really a question so much as a very lengthy <laughs> comment. Um, but I'm one. <laughs> thanks, Sarah, for 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 that helpful question. Uh, but I but yeah, but I'm wondering if sort of well, it's twofold. A, how do we see reality TV as kind of responding to the new political landscape? Yeah, I guess I'll start with that. Uh, I can give it a shot. This is Matt again. Um, and I should start with a confession. So this goes back in time, but I promise I'll make a, a point that's relevant. Um, so going back to 2004, I was in Professor Lynn Joyrich's uh, class at Brown University. I think the class was real TV. Um, and so the first TV studies paper I ever wrote was on The Apprentice. Um, and so the confession is, I should have probably pursued that project because I might have somehow stopped <laughs> the Trump presidency in, in some way. Um, but Sarah, it was very much about the kind of point you're making. I was obsessed with the idea of meritocracy on the show and how it presented this idea of sort of real fair competition, right? That, so it's like this is a fair process. Like we have competitors of different races, different genders, and everyone is on here and Trump fires some people. But then at the end of the day, it's fair and someone wins, right? And we had a white winner and a black winner, right? But I think the connection for me, um, both that I think Trump is really good at television, unfortunately. And so I think that is something that's going to be true um, after he leaves the, eventually when he hopefully leaves the White House, is he, he'll find a home on television. He's quite a talented television performer. Um, but I think the point you're making, one of the in interesting points you're making is that uh, I think television is particularly bad at illuminating structures of power. We think about everything we've seen just in the last six months, the by all accounts, the largest social movement in US history with Black Lives Matter. Um, people talking in the mainstream media about reparations and about defunding the police, police abolition in ways that hadn't existed in the mainstream media previously. But at the same time, it's very hard to get past sort of sound bites, right? The sort of very shorthand sort of defund the police, Black Lives Matter, but actually getting into the, sort of the structures that led uh, not just this generation of, of activists, but previous generations of, of activists to um, protest structural racism. TV both doesn't really have an interest in that, but it's also not particularly well suited to uncovering those things that are kind of behind the headlines or behind the sound bites. Um, I think reality TV isn't to blame for that, but it's kind of a, a symptom of sort of the broader orientation of TV news and the, the medium as a whole is that it's very difficult to, um, to spend the time and to do the actual research that it takes to um, dive deeply into some of these issues. Um, I think in a different world, if we think about the relationship between TV and democracy, we would be able to have more funded research linked to TV so that they could actually dig into these in the way that we sometimes see with, with documentary programming. And so I, I would love to see in sort of a fantasy world, the entertainment value of reality TV linked to exposing some of the things that people so obviously care about. Yeah, that reminds me so much of, I actually just saw like a tweet thread by N.K. Jemison, the celebrated um, science fiction fantasy writer where, you know, she's like, okay, I'm fairly convinced that we've won the election. So now let me talk a little bit about storytelling. And she basically makes that point about the sound bite. And, uh, and, she, and she basically is like, Democrats need to get better at the sound bite. Um, Katie, you wanted to uh, add something. Yeah, this was something I was thinking about a lot this week, but also just in generally. TV is imperative to be a storyteller and to be digestible despite all of the rhetoric about like complex TV, right? Especially with news programming, but even with like reality TV, it's meant to be digestible. And it's very hard to sum up the movement for black lives in a sort of digestible soundbite in a way that's gonna resonate with people who aren't already sort of on board. And so that was one of the things I was really thinking about was how can we take 
these progressive movements, like how can we get the news networks to talk about Stacey Abrams when they're talking about why Georgia is going to eventually at 4 a.m. flip from, from red to blue? Like how do we sort of get these sort of like grassroots organizations and the people doing this like really difficult organizational and activist work, how do we sort of get them into this larger narrative of what's happening in like American history? And I think that's really difficult. And I think it's one of the problems facing the Democratic Party moving forward is how to do that effectively. One of the things to, to Katie's point, one of the interesting things to me is the way that journalists on the ground pick the people who will speak on camera. And we're seeing more women covering um, the elections on the ground there at Biden's rally, for example. Uh, my class read Katie Tour's book about her working uh, for NBC covering Trump in 2016, and it was really eye-opening for them. And one of the things I noticed Saturday night is that the journalist, it was CNN, who was covering the Biden rally or announcement, chose two women to speak on camera who specifically singled out Stacey Abrams and reminded everybody of the work that she had done in Georgia um, to make Black women more visible and Black voters more visible. So I, I am thinking with Georgia becoming more prominent because of the two senatorial runoffs, we're going to hear a lot more about her, certainly. But to your point, it seems to come in via female journalists. I think they may be more aware of exactly the kinds of dynamics that we're talking about. Certainly Katie Tour's book lay bare the power dynamics that you don't see discussed on television broadcasts, but in journalists' memoirs of their campaign experience, that's an alternate source, but it's all over the place there um, in very vivid graphic detail, the way Trump treated her, certainly. So I think that may be one way into it, the choices that female journalists are making to highlight the work of other women in the electoral process. I'm trying to think of a like really amazing <laughs> final question to ask everyone. And I'm like, this conversation has been so great so far. This is sort of a fun question and something that we've discussed a little bit already. Like we've talked a little bit about our electoral viewing patterns. And I'm wondering if there was a way for you in which, you know, these kind of electoral viewing patterns were shot through or woven together with other kinds of viewing. I know that, for instance, like my partner and I have been watching The Vow at the same time as watching election coverage. And I think that there's this way in which, you know, I was trying to think about like what function that served for us, you know, throughout this kind of time where everything else we were watching was live news. And I feel like with The Vow in particular, it's fascinating because you know that this story is unfolding at the same time as like, you know, the initial years of the Trump presidency, basically his entire term. And yet there's barely, you know, nary a mention of kind of electoral politics in this show, which is, of course, a deeply political show. And I think also really like gives a sense into kind of ideology during the Trump years. But again, with like nary a mention of that. Right. And I think that this this kind of goes to a question that Hunter and Brandy and, and Lynn had posed in their notes to me, which is that distinction between politics with a capital P on TV and, you know, television as this thing that is always already political. But I'm wondering if what you're you know, what, if anything, have you been watching alongside election coverage 
And how have you either leaned into the kind of traumatic capital P politics of it, or how have you, you know, sought refuge outside of that? Well, I mean, I have been watching some documentaries and other films about Nazi history. Oh boy, that was not what I was expecting. <laughs> well, you asked what else I'm watching because, you know, I kind of wanted to see what does the exceptional Nazi state look like as opposed to the regular one that I inhabit. But the other thing is that I've been feeling kind of to return to the point about didacticism that came up earlier. One of the things that watching the election coverage has done for me is without you even realizing it, it instills a kind of faith in democracy. Uh, it's geared to that. Look, people are voting. That's great. Look, the votes are not fraudulent. That's great. So on and so forth. And it makes me feel hopeful for a democracy that is deeply flawed and is not democratic in a thousand different ways. So I also feel like the reality television news program, which does all of this ideological work to get me on board to their version of democracy, allowing me to look away from all of the ways in which this is a pretty crap democracy that we live in. And we're still kind of being made to invest in the thing as it is right now, just because Joe Biden manages to squeak in a victory in 2020. So. I feel like I'm watching a kind of reality television program in many ways because of its, the kind of ideological work it does and the way in which it does that ideological work, the sort of normalization of the present uh, and the absolute sealing off, somebody said framing earlier, this sealing off of thinking about democracy in much more progressive ways and much more you know, participatory ways. And we're not doing that. We're like rejoicing in the streets because Joe Biden won. I mean, I, I'm saying we should rejoice, but there's also a little, it makes me uncomfortable as I'm watching the stuff. Well, we're rejoicing at the kind of actualization that happens in reality TV all the time of like the mediocre white man, you know, winning the competition. <laughs> That's the whole history of American Idol. <laughs> to that point, I've been reading histories of resistance to the Nazis how people resisted when so much was at stake and it was even worse, obviously, than, than what we're dealing with in many ways. But I will say for pure escapism, if you want, I can't take any more of this at the end of the day. We've been watching James Bond movies, which, you know, for all the issues that raises, I will say for two hours, I did not think about the election. One might think about a lot of other things, um, but that was that was my escapism. So for what that's worth, those two things, the Nazis and James Bond. Hmm. Totally shocked by the amount of uh, Nazi programming that uh, people have been consuming. I shouldn't be, but I am. <laughs> uh, Katie and Matt, should we let, let, let's get some final uh, comments from the two of you before I guide us out of this wonderful hour. Yeah, I really just want to echo what Rupali said about TV really producing this feeling of hopefulness and like we did it. Like there's this manufactured moment of triumph as though anything structural will change. And maybe some things will. I remain an optimist in spite of literally everything. But I found myself in group text texting people and be like, is this feeling hopefulness? I don't understand what's happening right now. And so TV is just so effective at doing that and sort of producing that emotional catharsis, right? It's been four years of anticipating this night and hoping that it would go this way, even though it was a Saturday afternoon. 
And so, yeah, that was one thing I was really thinking about. I cannot watch anything dark or sad at all. (laughs) I am exclusively watching TV shows that premiered in 2005, not intentionally. It's just where I'm at right now. It's my comfort zone. Lots of Grey's Anatomy. Thank you, Shonda. Lots of New Girl. It's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, I can't imagine reading about Nazis right now. So I'm impressed that you guys can't, honestly. Um, Sarah, go back to your question. What we're watching in tandem? Um, I've been watching a lot of sports uh, through as soon as sports live sports started up again, um, and so I've been fascinated by how ESPN in particular has sort of tried to sort of toe the line about what kind of politics they can discuss because they've had a very firm corporate policy of not discussing sort of capital P politics as such unless it pertains to sports directly. Um, but of course, those lines have been, they've always been blurred, but they've been completely blurred in the last several months. And so I just am fascinated on each of the different shows and the live broadcasts, what they term okay and, and not okay to, to talk about. Um, and I'd love to see those production meetings as well to see when people think they're going too far or not. Um, and I think a final thought going to what Rapali mentioned, obviously my approach to TV studies is informed heavily by African-American history and African-American studies. And so I think for me, sort of thinking about that as a way to try to make sense of how TV tries to always put kind of a nice bow on things. I think the way Rapali framed it was sort of it's a success of democracy, like the the process worked, um, problem solved, right? We fought off fascism and tyranny. Um, I think from an African-American studies perspective, I think there is something to be said about harm reduction, right? That even if Biden isn't the preferred candidate, a lot of people, um, there is a participate in the political process for harm reduction, right? It's it's less, it's the less bad outcome. But I think also just sort of thinking about the the long history of, of resistance and continuing to fight even when the, odd, the odds and the structures are stacked against you. I think that as from a teaching perspective is something I always try to remind students that a lot of what we saw in the last four years with Trump for Black Americans, Native Americans, a lot of other people uh, in the country is not at all new. It's just, it takes on a different facet, but it's not... Uh, these are not new dynamics, right? They're presented differently in the last four years. Um, that's not always reassuring. Like, I don't present it to students to be somewhere like that, that fixes things, but it can give people a sense that these battles have been going on and will continue to be going on for, for generations and that you can find, uh, find strength in those histories and those, in those traditions of resistance. I think that this is the perfect place for us to actually end our conversation. It's been so wonderful talking with everybody here. Uh, Applause all around. I really want to thank you all for speaking to these important issues. So once again, Rupali Mukherjee, Matt Delmont, Katie Lausch, and Susan Omer, thank you for your willingness to chat today. Uh, And on behalf of the co-organizers for this podcast, Brandy Monk-Payton, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves, all of whom are absolutely fabulous humans, I also want to thank our sponsors, SCMS, ACA Media, the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies, and the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, my alma mater, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. Many kudos also go out to Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all their help with the recording and Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. Our next episode will be on tactics. How might we respond to commercial television strategies of representation with our own tactics, something that we uh, began to talk about today? And how might we define a televisual activism as we look forward to 2021? We're very much interested in hearing your thoughts about the most important and interesting issues for this topic. So please send in questions and thoughts through email, talkingtelevision in a pandemic at gmail.com, Twitter uh, with the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, and Facebook. Join the Occam Media Facebook group and then post questions there. 
I am Sarah Kessler with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis, and thanks so much for listening. Please stay healthy and wear a mask. <laughs>